Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Sam Albert. I'm Daniel Morbach. And I'm Molly Krassel. Today on the show, LGBTQ plus representation in graphic novels. And it's still Pride Month. We got a second Pride cast in during Pride Month. I know, it's really kind of cool. Getting through all of our technical issues and new subscriptions to remotely podcast. That said, uh, I I always have a question. I always have a question to begin the podcast. And we did another podcast about... LGBTQ plus representations in games. And I started with what we liked. So now I will start with what we think is most problematic. What things do we not like about the representations that we have seen in the graphic novels that we have either enjoyed or despised? That was a tricky question for me because I feel like I've read a lot that I really like. So I, I'm oh, having nice. like a really hard time, which is good, yeah. But I had a hard time trying to think of some that didn't work. I don't know if I can. I, I have one. It's not going to be fair because I didn't read the books because the books haven't been released yet. I, I believe it was, um, it was either, I think it was X Factor. The writer announced the new lineup and he announced that there were... I think a trans character and a, and the character and their brother and sister. And one is called safe space and the other is called snowflake. Oh, I heard about that. The art is really weird too. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, whoa, 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 calm down. I'm trying to be, I'm being supportive here. It's like when, when a culture takes a slur and then they own it, like they, these characters, they don't see like the idea of a safe space or being a snowflake to be, bad things so you know she creates um uh, i forget who what the gender pronouns are with these characters i I read it a while ago but she creates these super sharp shurikens in the in the shape of snowflakes it's called snowflake right and then safe space can create force fields and everybody's like whoa time out you're not you're not getting it buddy i know you're trying I respect your trying. You're not getting it. Safe space and snowflake. It's not a good idea, buddy. There was another character. I'm trying to think of the name in that lineup. And it was also really negative. Yeah. It's a vampire goth character. Get it? Be negative. Oh, I got it. It was yeah. worthy. It did feel, I, I saw a lot of people talking about it, that it just felt too on the nose. Like, yeah. it, it was just too, I don't know. It, it almost felt like a parody, I yeah. guess. Yeah, you name a vampire goth character, be negative. Like, this yeah. better be a joke. It's fine if yeah. it's a joke, but if it's like, and it's some 40-year-old writer that's like, I'm trying to get in touch with teenage counterculture. Oh, no. Swing yeah. and a miss, buddy. I you're you're trying to help swing and a miss. Yeah. Oh, I just looked up the other one's Trailblazer, which That's is also it. a little weird. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So is he saying okay, is it a he? 
Yes, the writer. Yes. The writer and the artist who designed the characters. If I'm remembering right, I could be getting some of this wrong. So am I getting this right? The sort of defense here or the explanation here is that he is not gay. Like if I say like, oh, Polish people are dumb. I can say that because I'm Polish. He's not doing that. He's saying my characters are queer characters and therefore... I can be as on the nose and over the top as I want. That's what his he he's trying to be progressive. He's he's trying to be help. He's not he's not punching down. <laughs> okay, he's trying okay. to be like, well, this is this these are these are kids today, and we we want to show our support for these movements by having characters that have you talked to a child? <laughs> have you talked to a child, sir? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure how much research goes into uh, creating a graphic novel, but I I should think that any writing aspect should involve some, and perhaps not enough was done. Yeah, it's it sounds. Let's just say it sounds perfect for the problematic representation part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right. How about you, Molly? Anything on your? Um. So I I haven't read it myself, but I heard that there was a big stink about. Batwoman, mm -hmm. uh, about Batwoman Kate Kane of 2013. Um, so she was going to be married, I believe, to, I think it was the Gotham, Gotham City Police Chief, um, who was a woman. And they had a, a, despite being shown twice in the comics, like depicted twice as proposing to her, and they were going to have a wedding, and they were going to get married, um, they didn't. And not uh, not only did they not get married, but it, uh, the lead writers quit. Mm. So there, there, there was sort of a scandal. It wasn't internally. Yes, internally there yeah. was a, a big deal. I mean, when not only like one but both of the lead writers of a particular story back out, you know that you've kind of screwed up somehow. Yeah. Um, and according to the writers, uh, J.J. Williams, or J.H. Williams III, which is a heck of a name, uh, and W. Hayden Blackman, they were told that they could not depict either a wedding or the marriage successfully happening. Hmm. And as I'm sure you can understand, they took that to be um, basically anti-LGBTQ yeah. and decided to uh, wash their hands of it. So the, the the powers that be kind of said it can be a thing, but it has to happen completely off stage. Is that kind of no, no? They were not allowed to be married at all. Oh, depicted. Okay. So or did otherwise. they did they write it out in like the the following book, or did it was it just like it didn't happen? I like everyone forgot about it. <laughs> well, the lead writers quit, so I'm not 100% sure that it continued. <laughs> ah. yeah. um, but honestly, gotcha. I, I did not hear of the aftermath. I have heard from sources, uh, namely people that I know, and I don't know if this is true, that there were perhaps some deaths involved mm. to prevent these unions from occurring. And I cannot corroborate that, so nobody quote me on it. We will be furiously Googling afterwards. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why weren't we furiously Googling we beforehand? Should. Yes. We had <laughs> I did some Googling. Issues. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think it's interesting because on the one hand – 
there is, and this was the uh, the official defense from DC. They they came out and made a statement after the writer said that they were quitting. DC said, "Oh no 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 no! It's it's not it's not because they're gay. It's because um, they're superheroes, or that Batwoman is a superhero. So it's not it's not that we're being anti LGBTQ. It's not that queer bad. It's that." Um, Batwoman as a superhero is not allowed to be happy because no superheroes uh, are allowed to be happy and have meaningful relationships. Hmm. I'll I'll just go ahead and say that sounds that sounds pretty consistent in in my opinion. Uh, what their actual motives are, I, I'm not a mind reader. It's just every time you hear somebody's getting married, it's like, and somebody's going to abandon somebody at the altar, or some supervillain's going to crash it, like. Nobody's getting married. Like, stop it. It's North Star was like the exception. And then even Scott and Jean got divorced eventually. And then it just, it always falls apart. I, I don't know. Honestly, I, I think that that is true, that it is very consistent with the superhero mythos. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing because it's narratively kind of shitty. I've said a couple times, I think, on the show that uh, longevity is the death of story. Like, if you want to keep this long-running comic in order to sell uh, issues, basically, you're going to sacrifice the narrative at some mm -hmm. point. So that, that, I think, is one element of it. On the other hand, I think... So, so things that are good about this. It, it sort of insists that uh, superheroes, that all superheroes, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity or otherwise, are being treated equally here. Because this is not something that would necessarily happen to... It's not, it's not because she's gay. It's because it's a thing that happens to all superheroes. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, this was going to be like the gay wedding, like the big singular gay wedding. I, I'm not sure if this predates North Star or not. I suspect that it might because of 2013. Um, but I would have to check my dates. The fact that they chose and were specifically told that they could not even depict this thing was very frustrating for some people. It was enraging because you can't... It Basically, I, I don't think that um, queerness in general has been normalized enough in any sort of media in order for it to be treated ubiqui ubiquitously. Like... I, I don't want to say like, oh yes, give all the queer characters special treatment, but also maybe maybe we need to show this representation first before we can say like, you know, if, if there were like several other gay weddings that had been out there at the time for superheroes, it wouldn't be a big thing. But because it was going to be the one, that's a problem. They couldn't say we were doing something, we were trying to do something different or break from... If they were doing right. something different, they could have successfully yeah. allowed a superhero to have a wedding and a gay yeah. wedding at that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and that, it kind of sounds like I mean, for me, I was trying to think of things that just make representation bad in comic books and just in general. And I always think of like queer baiting mm -hmm. and yeah. that yeah. whole concept, and that's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, I'm not huge into the superhero comic book area, but. It does sound a little queer baby. Yeah, yeah. We made up a word, queer baby. Yeah, <laughs> like queer baiting is totally a word, but queer baby. It's this is just like a. It's a place where words grow. That's right. Right. <laughs> where queer baby crumps. We're <laughs> <laughs> crumpy and queer baby. <laughs> how, about, how about how about stuff that we like? How about who gets it right and what it means? To get it right. 
you know, you're Sarah or Sam's talking a little bit about what it means to get it wrong. Where are the representations that we see doing the things that we would like to see? For me, it's just when queer characters are treated like any other character ever. That is when it feels most natural. But yeah, I mean, I can I can think of some of my favorites. And I was kind of going through my list. And a lot of them were coming of age graphic mm. novels, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen any besides maybe on a sunbeam that kind of had an established relationship that was about queer characters who are like, like grounded in their queerness yet. They're mm-hmm. like all kind of discovering. It's a lot of like discovery things, but that also might be because I read a lot of YA. That that is a general theme of YA, or or it could be thematic, perhaps of as a culture we are in our our YA phase where we are the coming of age to deal with or something. Yeah, for sure. Like in a in a sort of in a sort of meta way, yes. right? Like the industry itself is trying to figure out its. That's true. Well, and I think that it's a very popular and specific narrative because you have a a couple different ways that, like, in storytelling, you can handle queerness altogether. And one of them is where the queerness itself is the focus of the story. It is, and that usually, you know, involves around people having relationships. Mm -hmm. So, so you said on a sunbeam, Molly, do you? Can you think of any that you like? um, Others that you like? I remembers uh fun home i am head over heels for monstrous right now we interviewed marjorie lou and you were like hey pick up this graphic novel and the art is gorgeous and the story yeah. is amazing and yeah. like the art is insane it, is, it like that i think uh you're not supposed to judge books by covers right except unless they're graphic novels i guess and i looked at it and i was like oh i'm gonna like this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I totally judge like every graphic novel ever on its cover. Yeah. <laughs> Which is maybe not good, but I feel like <laughs> the art for me will like make or break it because right, like you have to stare at it for the whole book. Yeah. And so yeah. right before we started this actually, I saw these two graphic novels and I'm like, "Oh, I wish I read would have read these beforehand because they like the art just looks so amazing to me." Um it's called there's one called Skim and the other one's called This One Summer by Mariko Tamaki. Mm. And I guess they did really good and they won awards. But, like, the art is so gorgeous. And they're both LGBTQ books. So that's, like, on my list now. And they kind of look like On a Sunbeam. And, I, I mean, you guys know I love On a Sunbeam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you like about it? What, what makes it so good? So, for me, it really reminded me of Studio Ghibli movies just in like it had a very specific atmosphere that I haven't gotten from a book in a while it was like especially because it was a graphic novel there were so many pages that were just like stills without dialogue or anything and just the coloration how like the colors were used so there was like color warm colors for the present and then cool colors for the past and it was just I don't know it's, it's such a good book and it's also like a space adventure, and I'm into what? that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, for me, it was really good. I also love it, it was a split timeline of the main character, Mia, as a kid and then as an adult or a older, a young adult. 
And I, I love when stories do that. It, it was it was really good. And also, um, it was unique in that every character was a woman. Ah. Oh, this is also like Monstrous. Yeah, Monstrous. Yeah. Cool, right? yeah. Except yeah. the cat, yeah. I think we determined. She never really came clean about that, did she? No, I, I think I think she asked. She said, uh, what, what gender do you think the cat is? And I think it did eventually come out. I think I was looking later, and I think they said he. And I was like, oh, okay, so he's he's a boy. But Yeah, I remember her in the, in the podcast, she was like, I, I'm not going to tell you. She's specific. Right, and we were like, uh, I don't remember. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, my gender was cat. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. How about, Molly, how about you? Do you have any specifics? Like on a sunbeam, I liked that Monstrous was largely female dominated and then not in like a, you know, like feminazi kind of way or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. But just that there were there were so many different characters and they were all just like girls. I mean, not all of them. Like there there are also some some males in there as well. Um, but just I think I think it was neat to me that that it wasn't like that the narrative itself wasn't focused on the queerness, that it was a story about a girl or a story about a person who is dealing with some stuff like having an eldritch god inside of her, which is, you know, problematic for some people. Tough stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, you know, that that wasn't the main story. It uh, It's that she is trying to figure out what to do and how to deal with this like catastrophic world destruction terror in addition to being comfortable with herself and finding out like the secret of her past and then she was just also gay mm -hmm. or at least involved with a woman at one point so yeah. like it it's just a beautiful breathtaking story that has queer characters in it who are just treated like yeah. people mm-hmm yeah, I remember That's good. too. I like that. Yeah, and I remember too when I was reading Monstrous. So I've only read the first book because they're all so good. <laughs> so bad. The but new one's coming out like tomorrow, I think, or something. I'm I know. super I have, pumped. I have so much to read, but um, I remember like even just seeing like going off of what you said of how it was really natural. I remember in the first book when there was like female guards at the prison mm -hmm. instead of just like male guards, and they were like super buff and like they yeah. were going to fight you. I remember I was like, I, I don't know why, like, it's weird, but I was so surprised. I was just like, why, like, why have I never seen threatening guards that are women? Right. It, it, it was weird to me. And like, it shouldn't be weird. Yeah. It's all kinds of stuff like that. Just the, like, it, I, I love how every, like, page of every panel or at least every arc questioned something in some way where you're like, huh, female guard that's a thing that i haven't seen before or huh what gender is this cat mm -hmm. or like huh this is just like like you can just it it was neat mm -hmm. it was neat because it was because it was challenging i think i think i think everyone should read it <laughs> i think it does that very elegantly by just saying like you know your typical swords and sorcery story is 90 percent men if you just invert that ratio not not doing anything else other than just inverting that ratio then you get those weird moments. It's like, well, why did I have to stop and pause and think mm. about the prison guards? Right. And like, it just, it, I don't think that she had like an agenda to go out and do that. It just seems to be just, they're, they're going to be predominantly women. And that's kind of the end of a creative conversation. And then yeah. you get all of those wonderful moments unpacked. 
I think too, it, like we were talking about bad representation. I, I think when it feels forced, like we were talking about earlier with the like so, social justice warrior superhero, whatever they were called, the snowflake and, and safe space. Ah, uh, yes. Safe space. It, it feels forced. And I, I think it, it just works so much better when you're not thinking about it and you're just like thinking about the story. And then later on you can be like, oh yeah, that was good. But it's not, it just feels like a character. Doesn't that in some ways, I don't know, I keep thinking as you or all of you are saying what you are, that it really, we really like stories that treat us as adults, as readers and mm-hmm. viewers. Yeah. Like, do not, please do not spoon feed me. Don't lecture me. Don't give me a sermon on this. I, I've come here for a story and I don't really care to learn a political lesson. Yeah. I want to learn a lesson about what it means to be a person and fall in love with other people or a monster or whatever the case may be, right? I mean, it's we're really saying treat us like adults, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Treat everybody like adults. You know, it's it's yeah. Bill and Ted. Be excellent yeah, to each other. Right. Daniel, how about, how about you? Do you have any... Sp- books in particular that that you find get it right do it well there's a there's a book called how loathsome by uh tristan crane and i'll mess up this name ted nafi i think his name is so it's set in san francisco in the modern age and and uh it it tries to cover sort of the full maybe not the full full breadth but the, the full breadth of of lgbtq where you have a woman, she's not exactly bi, but kind of bi, but she's particularly attracted to transgender women that are still intact. You know what I'm getting at? Her best friend is, he's hes a straight, bit of a homophobe, actually. And then the, it's everybody that exists within each other's orbit. And then there's it, it operates a little bit like a, a vignette. It's not an anthology, but you sort of jump around where the, the the full sort of spectrum of sexuality as it relates to this main character. And it's done very unapologetically. There's no uh, it's not exactly condemning or condoning because there's a lot of drug use, like characters get other people on like hard drugs, but there's not a condemnation it's more like well this is this is warts and all sort of approach to this completely boundaryless sexuality including oh well we were gonna hook up but then you decided oh you pulled this thing out and now i'm uncomfortable and it's like that's all right i'll get a cab when you have a sex life like mine it's you're used to these uncomfortable moments and it's it's just very a warts and all sort of approach it's also, I think there, there's there's these beautiful little elements where she'll have a dream or it's not anybody's dream. Just suddenly you'll go back in the past where suddenly you're in Japan and it'll tell a little fable about like, you know, this this spirit being the core of the human being and, and reincarnation into another gendered body. Um, and And that sort of elevates it beyond like the the dirt and the smut of the San Francisco S and M underground environment. 
Mm-hmm. So it it has these wonderful moments of sort of elevating, um, bringing in metaphor and and um, the allegory of the different characters and how sort of like the the dream sequence of, of um, sorry not the dream sequence the pirate sequence in Watchmen where you're like well who does this character apply to. And as you apply it to different characters, you're coming to different conclusions. And it has these this wonderful dimension of the text. And and yeah, it's a great book. It always comes back to Watchmen, doesn't it? <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Bat- Batman and Watchmen. Yes. Yeah. Well, you brought up Batman this time, so I know I did. But so that I think is a kind of good segue into one of the last things I wanted to cover. You said first you said a couple of things that struck me first that the book unapologetically looks at some things that we might in sort of mainstream society see as not, I don't know, normal. Yeah. Not normalized. Right. And it's not it's not looked at as big deal the characters just kind of go with what it is they're experiencing yep and i think that in some ways isn't that doesn't that become part of the problem with the reader response like the audience like isn't it really that there is a certain population that can never they can't get over the fact that it's just not normal for them does that does that make sense like there's a certain cr- deliberate cringe in how yeah. it's being presented. It's called empathy, bro. Yeah, right. In the context of this book, I would say yes. In related to that, just because it's making me think of it, there, there's the, the aforementioned slightly homophobic male best friend character. The girl he's hitting on, he finds out is trans and is, and he's like, oh God, I can't believe I let him kiss me. And he like storms out, but then he comes back later and his friend is like, yo, why were you in the bedroom together? And he's like, eh, you know, good head is good head. And it's like, well, well, wait, wait a minute. No, like yeah. you were cringing at this before. And he's yeah. like, eh, well, well, you know, life is life. Eh. And it's kind of th- this weirdly eh, take it as he takes it, take it as it comes by. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what, Part of part of what I wanted to kind of touch on at the end here is the way that these things affect our readings. And I think that while so, for example, I was talking to Sam, Sam and I are both playing Last of Us and I can't really stop thinking about it or talking about it and I'm not <laughs> even that far in. This is the graphic novel podcast. Dean. I know You're this confused. is the graphic novel podcast. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. But Daniel said kind of warts and warts and all. That's another thing that you said, you know, take this thing in for all its ugliness and its rudeness and its crudeness. And I was messaging back and forth with Sam the other day and saying one of the things that I find completely fabulous about the visuals in Last of Us is that we have women who aren't living through the apocalypse with perfect makeup and clothes, whose hands aren't manicured, who have armpit hair, who aren't doing their hair and making it perfect, right? In some ways, for me, that makes the experience better because it is sort of warts and all that that 
real quality of smelling because you don't take a shower or a bath, right? We have created this hyper real bubble yeah. that has pervaded through the general public perception of what everybody thinks things are. Yeah. And so I think sometimes that ugliness is necessary, quote unquote ugliness, to break through and say, hey, <laughs> it's it's the allegory of the cave, you know, get out, man, look around you. There's it's not just uh it isn't all the way that you think it is. And I think that's one of the really important things about having all of these different kinds of stories available too, is that you do learn more about the world and about the ways around you and about people who are different from you by reading things. And it helps you grow as a person. Yeah, and I think part of the visual aspect of comics is that it allows for that same sort of thing, doesn't it? But don't we have a certain demographic in readers of comics, just like players of video games and watchers of film and so on, that want their hyper-reality? Yeah, and it's weird because, like you were talking about The Last of Us, it almost seems like having reality in a game, like having real LGBTQ characters and real-looking and acting realistic women breaks the reality for certain audience members because they're just like so not used to it yeah. like for example with the last of us people just cannot accept the fact that the main character is a lesbian yeah. because that is almost so unrealistic to them because that has just never really happened in video games where it's not like the main thing yeah it's just like a part of this character yeah spoiler alert the target demographic that thinks it's the target demographic is not the only target demographic. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, isn't it a double hit against a certain demographic? It's like, first of all, you know, this game isn't what I thought it was in its relationship, but maybe that would be okay if they were really pretty. And you know what I mean? It's sort of like both mm -hmm. of those things are happening at, happening at the same time. And it's like overload, right? Yeah, because it's... It, the LGBTQ representation in media has to be digestible yeah. for everyone, you know, like straight people or just families or whatever they want to say. And so it right. can't... Families, which means cishet male gaze. Exactly. So it can't be fully realistic. It has to be this kind of fake thing for it to be digestible sometimes. Or people will like not think it's realistic because that's not what they're used to. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know. So is it really smaller creator collaborations that, that have more room to do those kinds of things? Do you think, is it the big publishers who are sticking to what sells? Do you think, I mean, is it the same story with graphic novels or do we see more of it creeping in than we do in some of the other? I, th I think you're touching on something just pretty on the nose where, I mean, if you're a big publisher, you got that wave by appealing to as wide an audience as possible. And I think that there's, instead of the perspective of why don't I find something that appeals to the largest number of people, it's remove all the things that don't appeal to the widest number of people. So what you're left with is often stuff that's just kind of soulless. Milk toast. It's just meant to be, um, you take a bite, there's no flavor, and you, and now you're just done. 
And I remember almost 20 years ago now, the first lesbian kiss in, in video games was, well, was it Fear Effect 2? And it was just what you were talking about, where it's just these two supermodels just making out to distract the guards. And it was like, okay, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. that's nice. Good for you. I think that ties in a lot too with what we um, actually had mentioned on our video game podcast that you have a lot of pressure to make money from larger corporations. And so they are looking to be the least offensive as possible. And I think that there is, especially recently, a change in what people are considering to be least offensive because more voices are being heard. And so you have, with the indies will save us because the indies don't have, you know, the higher ups breathing down their neck. They're telling stories that there is a niche for or that just there is a gap in, you know, there's there's a blinder that these stories, like, it's not that they don't exist. It's just that, well, the people who are largely known for doing these things are not putting them out because they're not selling. So, so the Indies, the Indies have risen up to, uh, to fill those gaps. And then because they are, turns out things that people actually want to see, they're becoming more mainstream. So do we see the curve, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said the curve of justice, the curve of humanity bends toward justice. I'm paraphrasing. Do we see, the arc bending do you think the generation of comic readers coming up now is far more inclusive and will start to demand these kinds of things i don't know what do you think sure yeah i i think so just from from being a kid and reading comics and now still reading young adult comics (laughs) um (laughs) like i i definitely have seen more representation from when I was little mm-hmm. and would go and try to find books, but I, it's definitely slow, Yeah, but it is there. I think it seemed to happen politically at least in a big hurry. Right. I mean, we went from a country where gay marriage seemed like a distant dream to suddenly kind of sweeping politically across the entire nation and legalization becoming a thing relatively quickly in terms of our tolerance and acceptance of those kinds of things. You know, you think about the amount of money that's put into resisting those that sort of change and it didn't really matter, right? I think it was the wave breaking you know, it was, it, it wasn't necessarily, it's sudden if you, tsunamis are sudden if you don't know what the signs are, you know, if you, I, I think that culturally the, uh, the tide was receding and it was getting ready to crash. And there were people who just looked the other way and said, no, no, this is fine because this is always how it is. And then when it came down, they were very surprised, but definitely that it was the way that things were leaning. I think, I think, I think it is bending. Like you said, I think the curve of justice is coming. Maybe, maybe slowly and sometimes maybe crashing like waves quickly on others, but I think it's coming. We need this. We need like a group of superheroes, like safe space. Snowflake. (laughs) Trailblazer. Snowflake. No, we don't. I don't think so. I don't think we need those. (laughs) (laughs) But we did, we are ending on an uplifting note with the curve of gayness bending towards 
gayness, I guess. The curve of humanity bends towards queerness. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The pub is produced on that series of tubes we all know as the internet from the studios at Underdark, which doubles as my basement and office. You can listen on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, where we post new episodes every Monday. You can also find us at straylightmag.com, where we publish new stories, poetry, art, and, of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and at The Pub Podcast on Twitter. Thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. 